While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you all believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all of the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped, 
throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here. Though they are neither robbed, neither, they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sally, for that uh, marathon of a reading. It's an amazing passage with so much going on in it. My mum used to say to me, what's the magic word? And the answer was, who said abracadabra? Yeah, usually I'd say please, but sometimes if I was feeling insolent, I might say abracadabra or uh, hocus pocus or something like that. But I knew that please was much more likely to get me what I wanted. It wasn't magic, but it seemed to work. Uh, the Ephesians came from a culture of magic words. They had a mighty temple Rob, could you put the first, there we go, this is the temple, um, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. People flocked from far and wide to see this amazing, uh, this amazing temple, which was huge, and right at the center of the temple, there was a massive statue of Artemis. There she is, otherwise known as Diana. Uh, she was a goddess of the humped, among other things. And she and the temple were absolutely central to the life 
and to the economy and to the whole identity of Ephesus. Um, in fact, on the base of the statue, this isn't the, sta the statue, the statue that was there was, is long gone, but on the base were inscribed six words. And these, Rob, are the six words. Now, anyone who knows a little bit of ancient Greek uh, will be able to tell you that that means nothing at all. That is an utterly meaningless <laughs> phrase. Uh, and in fact, um, what they were more concerned about than the meaning was the sound. And where they believed that when these words were spoken correctly, they had the power to protect, to heal, to restore. And you could have them inscribed on an amulet. Uh, you could have them placed on your belt. You might speak them out loud, but you would believe, or many people believed, that they offered protection or even helped to cast out demons. And all of that might sound a little bit prim primitive to our modern Western ears, but we are sometimes guilty of doing a similar thing. It's often called magical thinking. Uh, in the run-up to the World Cup, I heard an, um, a show on the radio, and they were asking people to phone in with their lucky routine that they have to, when they're preparing for a game. These aren't the players on the pitch. These aren't the people who have any control over the outcome. Um, but nevertheless, I'm sure some of us at home have got similar things where we make sure we have the same snacks for every game, or we make sure, or we believe that our team will concede or score if we leave the room. You might even have a lucky shirt that you wear when you're watching the football, like this one. Like this one. Nope. Like this one. Um, or you might have an unlucky shirt, like this one, um, which would have been my shirt yesterday. But um, we trust in these things which have no power over, over um, no power to achieve the things that we desire. Thanks, Rob. And I know that many of us are probably not that superstitious. But we do put our trust in other things. We believe that things will be okay once we get our dream car or our dream house or our dream family. That everything will be okay. If we have the perfect body or the or perfect health, if we or the people that we vote for get enough power, everything will be as it should be. And entire industries and economies, from the drugs and the cosmetics that we're sold uh, to the buying and selling of weapons and of war, are built on this desire to protect ourselves and to put our trust in the things that we can own the things that we can aspire to, are the things that pro will protect us. So maybe it's not all that surprising that some of the Jewish exorcists spotted the impact that Jesus' followers, the ones who were known as the way, were having. Maybe they misunderstood the way that God was healing people through Paul's handkerchiefs. And they wanted to try and repeat it as though it was a magic trick. 
They started casting out demons in Jesus' name. And then maybe just to be clear which Jesus it was they were talking about, they said, the one whom Jesus preaches. And we may think that that's all right. I mean, after all, Jesus said, whatever, I will do whatever you ask in my name. So why does it backfire so spectacularly that they end up being chased out naked and bleeding? Well, it takes a, a cutting remark from the demon to spell it out. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Ouch! Their words are exposed as meaningless. They're trying to bandy around the name of Jesus like it's some magic formula to get them what they want. And they're not inviting Jesus the healer to release a man who is suffering from his affliction. They're just trying out a new set of magic words to bolster their own credentials. They want to co-opt Jesus to their agenda rather than following in the way. And I think that many people think that this is what Christianity is about. That we have some magic words. We invoke the name of Jesus. We cross our fingers and pray, or as Tom said earlier, we touch wood, <laughs> that we will get the outcome that we hope for. Perhaps to you, Jesus is just a word, just a historical figure, a handy idea that people use to offer themselves hope. Maybe you have dismissed the whole of Christianity as magical thinking. But if you're here or watching online, I imagine that you have at least an inkling that there is more to Jesus than that. And if we're honest, even those of us who claim allegiance to Jesus are guilty of it. So often we reduce the Christian life to a few inspiring verses so that we can put on a fridge magnet to get us through the day, or a set of bullet-pointed principles that we can sign up to so we're guaranteed eternal life a bunch of meetings we have to attend, or a collection of rules that we have to live by. But Jesus is much more than just a word, which when pronounced will give our requests some weight. Jesus is the word, the one in whom and through whom all things in heaven and earth are being reconciled. The man who was and is God made flesh, who died, was buried, and who rose again. Jesus isn't some incantation to be invoked. Jesus is God's very self, calling us into relationship with him so that we can be healed from our sin flourish into the people we were created to be and so that we can live our lives as an act of worship to our creator. We follow in his way. Yes, there are beliefs that Jesus leads us to. 
There are ways Jesus compels us to live. Yes, there will be meetings that we have to attend. Or at least we should attend. But to be the way is to be driven first and foremost by our encounter with Jesus. So we so often uh, imagine Paul as being this driven, dynamic leader who shook off the haters as he moved from place to place. And there's a little bit of that in this story. But it's so easy for us to forget how foundational his encounter with Jesus was. Over and over in Acts, we're told the story of how he first encountered the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And it transformed him from a Christian-hating zealot to someone who would give up, give up everything, all of his security, all of his identity, and put his life in danger to share the message of the love and the grace of God. The gospel didn't spread because Paul or anyone else spoke particularly compellingly, powerfully or diligently. All of these things are true. But the gospel spread because first a, few gr a group of people and then a few more and then hundreds and then thousands and eventually millions of people around the world encountered Jesus Christ. The Jews and the Greeks who practiced sorcery discovered this. They held the name of Jesus in high honor and so they burned their scrolls. And that may not sound like a big deal, but apparently 50,000 drachmas was about 135 years' salary. But they didn't sell them, having found worth and meaning in Jesus. Their spells, uh, they, they realized that their scrolls were worthless and that their spells were literally meaningless. So just like that, they sent them up in smoke. Honoring the name of Jesus didn't look like casting spells. It looked like giving up everything and following in the way. I think it's really important that we cling on, or that we remember this when we try to share the gospel with other people and the people around us. We're not just trying to get them into church, as though crossing the threshold on a Sunday morning has some sort of magic about it. We're not even just trying to get them to say a prayer of commitment as if only those magic words will fix them. We are inviting them into a relationship with the living God who longs to be in community with them. We are inviting them to see what we have seen. We are inviting them to experience a love that changes everything and a peace which passes all understanding so that they can confront all of those things which no longer hold any meaning, which are destructive 
and to embody a better way of being in the world. This, I think, is what concerns Demetrius the silversmith. So much so that he starts a riot. Because magic words or not, the goddess Artemis was definitely benefiting him. Because he sold miniature silver statues of the temple. He had no problem with people worshipping other gods. But he had noticed that the people of the way, when they discovered Jesus, were led to discover that the gods made by human hands were no gods at all. And if Artemis was no god at all, then neither was his income. And they're so desperate to preserve everything they've got, they shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours! Surely if Artemis is so great, she has nothing to fear from this Jewish sect. And yet, if they're right, well, it's not just Demetrius, but it's the whole economy which could come crumbling down it reminds me a little of the rich young ruler who longs to follow Jesus but knows that his way of life will suffer if he submits to Jesus as Lord. And so he goes away sad. The Bible calls this idolatry. When we set material things above God, when we trust in things which have no power, and we dismiss the one who does. The things we cling to will end up clinging to us if we don't allow Jesus to disrupt our lives. The Word. Good news of Jesus Christ disrupts us and all that comforts us. It calls us away from propping up those meaningless things for the sake of ourselves and towards giving up our own needs for the sake of others. Jesus isn't some kind of magic word to be uttered as a quick fix. Let's, let's resist the urge to reduce him to something that we can control. And let's commit ourselves to encounter with the living word the one who meets and inspires us, the one who disrupts our lives, our communities, and our comfort. Let's allow ourselves to be inspired and disrupted. Let's discover what it means to be people of the way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you inspired Paul and you inspired the people who called themselves the way to lead lives of radical devotion to you. Inspire us to be devoted to you and disrupted in the same way, allowing our lives to be shaped by encounter with you. Because your name alone is worthy of glory and honor and power.
in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.